It was fairly easy in hindsight to pivot to working completely virtually. It was like a light switch, right? It just flipped right off. It feels like a dimmer switch and you're not sure when to turn it and how far to turn it and do we turn it back down of when to start reusing our office space. That was Paul Ashley, a senior vice president and advisor at Indianapolis-based First Person and our guest today on Beyond COVID, an IBJ podcast that's about getting you to the other side of the coronavirus crisis. The podcast is brought to you by James Allen Insurance. I'm Leslie Weidenbenner. First Person is a consulting firm that helps companies with human resource and talent issues, including benefits and compensation. And as you can imagine, the firm has been busy trying to help its customers navigate the complicated decisions involved with bringing employees back to the office or the factory floor or wherever they used to work. And First Person is not only answering those questions for others, it's grappling with the same issues for its own employees. So we talked with Paul Ashley, who has been with First Person for nearly 11 years, about the advice the firm is giving to others and how it's handling its own situation. Here's our conversation. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. So tell us about how the pandemic has affected your office? The better question is how hasn't affected our office? So, you know, as a professional advisory firm, I think we were lucky that we're not bound by a particular space. While we prefer to have an, a workspace that we congregate in and, the, and the, the ability to collaborate that that causes for ourselves and our clients, it was fairly easy in hindsight to pivot to working completely virtually. It was like a light switch, right? It just flipped right off. We do miss being physically with each other, there's no doubt, but I can't say enough great things about our um, rapid response team that we formed internally to create the solutions for ourselves and for our customers. I think the challenge that we're running into is, while it was maybe easier in the crisis to flip the switch off of being physically in the office, it feels like a dimmer switch and you're not sure when to turn it and how far to turn it and do we turn it back down of when to start reusing our office space. And so. We intentionally don't call it reopening because we've always been open. We never closed. But how do we start to reutilize our physical office space and when? I assume that's one of the same challenges that you're talking to customers about. Every call with every customer for the last two or three weeks, most of them are based in the Midwest. So they all have about the same kind of reopening strategy. Did that in air quotes for the listeners. It's in every conversation. They say, well, what are you guys doing? What do you hear about your other clients? My advice to folks is kind of what Governor Holcomb said. Listen, if you can continue to work from home and do and run your business successfully, by all means, please do that because that'll just take more contact out of the system. And that sounds right to me. It sounds like he's listening to the scientists. I think that's probably right. But then if, you're, if you do need to physically open, if you're a manufacturer, if you're uh, in a retail facing business that has the ability now to start making money again, boy, it's not easy, right? It's really not easy. So we've leaned on a lot of our partners, really impressed with what uh, CICP has created Central Indiana Corporate Partnership. They created three different reopening strategy documents, one for manufacturing, one for retail, and one for uh, office space. And those can be found on their website. And I think I shared shared the link with you. So hopefully you can link yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll put that in the post under the podcast, under the audio. Perfect. I mean, they, they got some of the best minds available in the state and the region to come together to create those. And they're really well thought out. We're using a lot of their approaches for ourselves and for our, for our customers. 
are your customers in primarily any particular industry group? We've got a lot of professional services. So remote work and remote work challenges is something that they certainly have, uh, have identified with. And we know it well because it's who we are. We have a lot of manufacturing because we're in the Midwest, right? And so you can't help but have a lot of manufacturing clients if you're in the Midwest. As we look at what they've had to deal with, both are very different, right? You can't make money as a manufacturer if you've completely shut down your manufacturing. So most of them stayed open. They found out ways to run their manufacturing lines in thoughtful, socially distant ways with PPE. Obviously, the, the non-manufacturing uh, workers and associates of those companies started working from home. So they made a pretty big shift, and now they're, they're, they're coming back uh, a little bit stronger. Most of our professional services firms have gone completely virtual. And what's been interesting is they've learned so many things about themselves that they were never forced to learn how to leverage technology, how to use new technologies. Um, I think everybody's a Zoom expert by now. So it's, it's been really interesting to watch how they've adapted their workforce to meet the unique demands that COVID-19 has created. And I think there's going to be some things that carry on well beyond COVID-19 um, that make us more nimble and a better workforce. What are some of the things that you do expect will stick with us, that we'll be able to look back on in two or three years and think, yeah, that started during the pandemic? I think the collective comfort level with technology and a way to connect with customers, it's just become accepted now, right? It's like, oh, let's Zoom. That's great. It's just okay. So I think it might reduce some travel. I don't know if that's good for the hotel and travel industry, but I think that's true. Um, I don't think it's going to fully replace in-person meetings, but I think it's going to be an option that people are more comfortable with. It'll Seems be a more like it'll be a lot of early meetings will be Zoom before you get to the point where maybe you have to go close a deal or... Yeah, I think, that, yeah, yeah, just, you know, being a little more judicious with how we spend our time and money. The other thing that's going to stick with me, and we haven't really mentioned this yet, you know, myself personally and, and first person has headed into 20, have started doing a lot of public speaking and thought leadership around mental health in the workplace. Let me just say this, before COVID, the United States and our workplace, dealing with mental health in the workplace, we, we weren't very good at it. And we have a really close comparison to look at that's a, about a decade and a half ahead of us in Canada. Canada has done a really amazing job dealing with mental health in the, in, as something that's talked about in the workplace in a very productive, helpful way. And what I've noticed since COVID hit, it's, it's essentially thrown everybody in the country into a collective acute mental health situation. Stress, anxiety, a little bit of depression. Everybody's sort of experienced a little tinge of mental health, not a chronic thing, but a, a little acute. And I think it's allowed people to be more comfortable talking about mental health and be more open about um, what their experience is, what they're feeling. And um, I think that's gonna help expand the conversation post COVID to, to, to make mental health more acceptable in the workplace. I hear you have a furry, furry friend. Hey, as long as it's on the podcast, I, I think yeah. all of our dogs need to be heard. How many, uh, how many dogs do you have? Oh boy. So here's the real, here's the real rundown. Five kids, three dogs, one betta fish, and five butterfly chrysalis that just hatched this morning. That is very exciting. Butterflies, I'm told, we're going to be able to let go in the yard. <laughs> Those five. So let's see, we were talking about mental health. Do you expect the mental health issues that you're talking about will go away as people start go, going back to the workplace? Or do you think that is going to add a new layer onto the situation? That's a great question. So I think the, the generally acute mental health issues will start to go back to normal as we go back to normal. I think that the chronic conditions now, now will feel like they have a voice to talk. And that's what I think is a positive, right? I think employers are more aware of that than they ever have been and more open to talk and think about it. I do think there's an unforeseen challenge about returning to the workplace that people might not have thought of. They think, I think 
a lot of leaders think everybody wants to come back to work. And the reality is there's a lot of anxiety for some people about the idea of returning to a physical work environment and the idea of the, the anxiety that comes from getting sick. I also think there's a flip side, and this is a really sad commentary, but you know, it's, it's incumbent on leaders and, 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 and people leaders who have direct reports to really ask the question, are they safe in their home right now? Because for some people, coming to work was a respite from a situation at home where there may be emotional or physical abuse. And now if they're working from home and the office is not allowed to be open, they might be facing some challenges. I see that with the school as well. You know, I, April was um, Child Abuse Awareness Month. And it was uh, timely because I think it's something at 37% of child abuse gets identified through school, either counselors, administrators, or frontline teachers. Well, we have a situation where people are forced to be at home, stress and anxiety is up, and kids don't have their normal outlet for safety for school. So there's just a lot of mixed bags to this work from home, school from home stuff that I think as it relates to the workplace, I think frontline managers really need to be thoughtful about both sides of the equation. There's a ton of people who are anxious at being at home. There's a ton of people who are anxious about coming back to the workplace. And we just need to meet people where they are and, and truly just understand their need and try to adapt the workforce and how we allow people to work based on their unique needs. And I know that's not easy. It's easier said than done, but I think we've all proved to each other that we can adapt. So let's talk about a couple of those things, bringing folks back people who want to come back and people who may be scared about coming back. How should employers and leaders think about how to create a situation where people both are safer and feel safer? So here's what we did. And I don't know if it's a perfect practice, but I'll give you how we approach this. So part, part of crisis management to do it well is recovery. There's a recovery phase to crisis management. And that recovery phase forces you to look back and say, what did we do well? What could we have done different? What did we learn during the crisis that we want to apply post-crisis? And what do we learn in the crisis that we want to stop doing post-crisis, right? So we went through that process internally. Then what we said is, hey, we have to have a real clear reutilization of the office strategy. Notice I didn't say reopening strategy because we never closed. And the way we did that is we actually used Zoom. Zoom has a breakout feature. We had an all-team meeting where the 70-some people were together. We split out into groups of five. There was a facilitator in each group and we just asked some questions. That gave us great collective feedback. Then we've developed a customized reutilization of the office strategy plan, uh, which we rolled out verbally today at our all team meeting. They're gonna get an email tomorrow that has that entire document. And then there's a requirement that every people leader within the next, before June 1st, which is when the first phase of our reutilization of the office starts, that every person who has a direct report has a guided conversation with the direct report about what they see and need. So they've been able to express it in a small group we socialized those findings. We then said, here's the plan, here's the written plan, and then we're gonna be able to get additional one-on-one -on -one interaction from each manager uh, with each employee. And that's all gonna be complete by June 1st. And then phase one of realizing the office begins on June 1st. And does that mean some people are coming back or a few people are voluntary or how will it work? Completely voluntary. And here's how we're going to use our space. We have, I think, 12 different conference and small breakout rooms in our office. And you have to go on and reserve a space for a certain amount of time. If all the space is reserved all the time, we, you know the office is at capacity and you can't come in. So essentially, our office space can be used by 12 people at any given time. If it drops down to eight and you see a spot, you can go in there and reserve it. But if you go to look, if you want to come in, it's already reserved and it's already at 12, you know that you can't use it. So it's going to prevent people from driving from their virtual offices at home into the office and find out the space is not used. So we've got a way to look. 
And then um, early July, I think on the 6th, we're going to then reopen a little bit more of the space to do socially distant team meetings uh, where people are still gathering in smaller groups, but six feet apart using PPE. Phase three would be September or later. We're going to look at the complete reutilization uh, back to normal of our office, but it's going to depend on what the data says and what the scientists say. And I assume it also probably depends a little bit on some individual situations. What are the kinds of accommodations leaders should be prepared to make as they go through this? Well, it could be, uh, it could be me managing for my own need, but the one that comes to mind is childcare. And I think uh, that's not just when school is supposed to restart in, the, in August. Well, first of all, we have year-round and balance schedules, so you know, that, that's a challenge. But you've got summer camps that may or may not be happening. You've got summer childcare that may or may not be happening. When we're supposed to return to school in the fall in earnest in August and September, we don't know what that's going to look like yet. We won't find that out till July, maybe. Like that's what the governor said. So I think leaders have to be ready to pivot to meet the needs of their associates based on childcare. Otherwise, it's going to put a ton of undue stress on those people who work in your organizations who have children they have to care for. I think similarly for elder care, uh, let's not forget folks who've got to care for older folks in their home. Similar situation. Elder care may not be open. Uh, elder daycare, which exists. And then I think ultimately, you know, the people that maybe have a unique emotional anxiety to coming back to the physical workspace and aren't just ready yet, maybe they don't want to come back till the vaccine's available. That's, that's a reasonable request. I think employers have to listen to that and then determine, is this a role that can be done 100% virtually using the technology? Uh, and, or, or do we need to accommodate and adapt what that person does? I think employers have to be thinking about that. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is IBJ's Beyond COVID podcast. As you work your way through the pandemic crisis, would your business be ready if this happened again? James Allen Insurance offers comprehensive and customized pandemic coverage for business, including recovery of lost revenue. Learn more at jamesalleninsurance.com. Now back to our conversation about getting back to work with Paul Ashley, a senior vice president and advisor at Indianapolis-based First Person. I've been thinking a lot about the fact that as a manager, that there are employees who have health care or health needs who have some of these especially dangerous underlying conditions. Yeah. And I don't want them to have to say, I have an underlying condition, so I can't come in. That's yeah. a, those are difficult conversations, I think, for employees and, and their bosses. Do you have suggestions about that? You know, I, think, I think it's certainly okay for a people leader to ask somebody, hey, is there something, is there something for you that's an underlying health condition or you, know, you feel like you're uniquely at risk that coming back to the office will be a unique challenge for you? An employer can ask that. I mean, there's, there's no reason that you can't ask that. I mean, what you do with that information, you certainly have to be careful because of HIPAA and PHI. But you certainly can ask that question uh, to create accommodations for somebody. And that's why we're doing these one-to-ones, uh, because we want to socialize the master plan verbally and written, but then we also want to give people a chance to speak into their unique situation directly with their manager. Uh, and so we've equipped our frontline people managers with a talk track and a sort of a questionnaire to help them get going if they're maybe a little uncomfortable. It seems like there are some folks who just have discovered they really like working at home. I mean, I have to say, I'm a person who thought I would love working at home and I'm ready to go back. But I know there are probably lots of people who are working at home now and just want to stay. 
are you expecting lots more companies to make more accommodations than they used to for people who just want to work at home? 100%. I'm not saying 100% will. I just, 100% there will be a lot. You're going to see people adapt their policies long term for more remote, more remote work environments, more use and leverage of technology. It just makes good business sense because it allows an organization, a business to tailor the employee experience to the unique needs of the employee. And ultimately, that's how employers attract and retain talent, right, is meeting people where they are and tailoring their employee experience to them. And so I definitely expect people to do that. Now, there's some that'll just say, no way, we're going to go back to, you know, the way it always was. It certainly will be. But I I expect the majority to be way more flexible than they were pre-COVID. Let's go back to the mental health issue. How should employers be dealing with that situation right now? Well, take advantage of what you already have. So for most employers, they have, they usually have an EAP, which is uh, short for employee assistance program. It typically is baked in with either your medical insurance, your life or disability insurance, and it's a value added service that exists. So make sure your employees know about that, talk about it as much, post it everywhere, remind folks that EAP service is there. Um, That's sort of baseline. There also are some great programs out there, some free, some not, that are learning. So last week, we partnered with somebody that talked about the concept of compassion fatigue. So the idea when you're in a crisis and you're, uh, like we do, we help employers with their people strategies. That's a compassionate thing. And when a a lot of employers are doing furloughs or layoffs or considering that, and we're helping people with claims, and we know employee, uh, employees of our clients are having COVID situations and, and other stuff that goes on, it just wears on you. It creates what's called compassion fatigue. And so we did this whole mental health training with an outside vendor that taught us about compassion fatigue, how to talk about it, what to call it. The fact that it's okay to have it just sort of gives you the permission. So, you know, there's a lot of great services out there and they're not very expensive. Um, and then I've seen a lot of employers offer to their employees to purchase things like the Calm app, calm.calm.com, which is a meditation app. Um, And that can be a great, great tool for employees. So there's just tons of things you can do around mental health. I think the real, the main thing is um, as comfortable as a leader is being transparent about any of their own struggles, that vulnerability will create license and opportunity for others to be vulnerable in return. And I'm not saying people need to bear their souls in front of their associates, but they just need to talk um, in a professional way about what they're struggling with. And that just opens up the world for people when you do that. Last year, I wrote an article uh, and posted it uh, with Biz Voice Magazine, the Indiana Chamber. I'm happy to send you that link if you want to link it. And, you know, it was amazing the feedback I got from people leaders, some high level CEOs around Indiana, people I've never met. And they're like, thank you for being vulnerable. You know, it's something I've wanted to do and you've given me the courage to do so. And it's like, wow, I mean, who knew, right? The reason I did that was because I wanted to help other leaders help people. What I didn't realize is how much me talking about my own struggle publicly helped me. And so it's actually been kind of part of my journey with mental health, my personal journey with mental health. And it's been really productive for me. And my intent was to help others. And it certainly did, but I had no idea it would help me as well. So there's a payoff. Just share a little, be a little vulnerable. You'll be amazed at what it can do to build trust with you as a leader and, and give people license to also share what they need to share. I'm very surprised at the number of people who I mentioned the employee assistance program, either in my own location, or I mentioned to people at other companies saying, I'm sure your company has this, that are really surprised that it's there. Uh, are we doing enough as leaders to tell people about the resources that companies are often paying for and no. urging people to take advantage of them? No. 
I mean, if you look at EAP stats pre-COVID, it was less than 1% of the population would use them in a given year. Highly underutilized. It's gone up since then. Another great example is telemedicine. Telemedicine was kind of skirted around, you know, three or 4%. It's now blossomed up to eight or 9%. But, you know, employers by and large are not great at internal communication. And there's a reason it's hard, right? It's, it's, much, it's much more difficult to communicate to your internal population than your external client or market population. Because your internal population can throw a yellow flag and say, ah, that's not true. I know more than you. I, I know it's true. And so I think employers are a little fearful to communicate internally. But what I've always said is employers really make great boardroom decisions, but they generally fail to communicate those effectively. And if they could even make half as good boardroom decisions and twice as good communication, they would actually be better off. That seems so important right now, not only in the idea of bringing people back. I mean, first of all, we're working remotely. Second of all, people are going to be making this difficult, I think it will be somewhat difficult, transition back to the office. But also, companies are not in as good a shape generally as they were going into this. There's a lot of fear out there among people. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, and here's the thing. Employees will fill in their own information track. They'll play their own movie in their head and amongst each other unless you give them the facts. So some employers and leaders are afraid to communicate because they don't, they're afraid of what people might think. Trust me, what they're thinking on their own is way worse typically than the truth. And all you're doing is arresting their creative think track that is not the truth. So give them the information they need. Don't give them too, I mean, don't overwhelm them, but give them the information they need, tell the truth. And, and I think as I pointed out with our, our reutilization of the office plan, tell it to them in a couple of ways. Tell it to them verbally, tell it to them written, tell it to them on one-on-one conversations. Give them different ways to absorb the data over a period of time. And I think an area where employers are generally fearful to share information is about the financial health of the company. And you gotta, listen, most of these folks are not CPAs. They don't know how to read a balance sheet. So you just got to start small and just teach them some basics and then build on it over time. It's way better than them letting, play, letting them play a movie in their head. So many companies now are having to either lay folks off. Um, maybe that's temporary. Maybe it's permanent. And they also are maybe making cuts in salaries. That has to make people scared. And sometimes when you, someone gets laid off, it's sometimes hard to be left behind. As a leader, how do you communicate those kinds of things in a way that does not end up leaving your staff you know, feeling worse about things than... Yeah, I mean, layoffs are never easy. And, and there's, a, there's a real thing out there called survivor, survival guilt, right? If you work for a company and 10% of the workforce gets laid off and you're the 90% remaining, even you have significant challenges, sometimes worse than the folks who were fired or laid off. And so I think leaders have to recognize survival guilt is real. I think they have to talk about it. I, have to, I think they, they have to find ways to help their employees process it. Because if you ignore it, it won't go away, at least it won't go away quickly or in a healthy way. And so know that survival guilt exists, hit it head on, give them a place to talk about it in a constructive way. What are some of the other things that companies are talking to you guys about? I think a lot of folks are nervous about healthcare costs as well. You know, it's been interesting if employers that are self-funded have actually seen a bit of a respite right now because all the elective or non-emergent procedures essentially got shut down for 75 days. Now, the good news is they weren't having those claims. And if they didn't have a high incidence of COVID in their population, they were essentially having very little claims other than pharmaceutical. So they kind of got a nice two and a half month respite. The problem with that is though, there's a pent up demand for those services and that bubble, you know, is going to burst and then spread out through the remainder of the calendar year. I think, I think they're also nervous about a second wave of COVID and what that could mean for hospitalizations and health plan costs. So we're doing a lot of work projecting future costs and trying to figure out what the impact of healthcare will be in the fully insured environment, 
trying to work with our fully insured underwriters and actuaries uh, that they work with to find out what they're doing in terms of rating risk differently going forward. And I think there's probably more questions at this moment than answers, but it's becoming a lot more clear than it had been. We have a compensation practice in our business. And so a lot of employers who haven't let go of people are trying to figure out, well, we've got 36 plus million people jobless. Does this mean it's easier for me to attract and retain people? Or is this just a blip? Do I need to think about compensation in a different way? You know, so they're, they're talking about everything that relates to people. Any people strategy is there. Uh, train, they're talking about training. How do we train differently now that we maybe can't be in person? Leadership effectiveness. A lot of conversations about leadership effectiveness right now because we're finding out who the great leaders are and who they aren't and uh, who, who needs to up their game. So it's really across the board. What are the things that you think no one's thinking about that are going to crop up in, the, you know, in three months, six months, a year that we hadn't really, you know, as we're trying to just get through this crisis, we're not really thinking about? Well, I mean, the great unknown that we, none of us know is what, what's going to happen in the normal flu season, right? Come September, October, are we going to have, what's the normal flu going to be like? Is there going to be a second wave of coronavirus? Are we going to be able to tell the difference? Are we going to have the right testing we need? Where are we on the vaccine? Is the vaccine safe? <laughs> I mean, you know, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. And I think employers need, notice at the beginning of our conversation, I talked about a light switch versus a dimmer switch. It was very easy to toggle everything different. We are going to dimmer switch on and off, but we're going to probably have to dimmer switch back down a little bit, maybe come in the fall and winter when cold and flu season starts again, and then be able to, that's just a, a personal prediction. I think we need to think about reopening or re-leveraging of our workspaces instead of a toggle, a dimmer switch. That's what leads to that idea. Yeah. I love that imagery because that is very much what it feels like. And it's almost as if not only does the company have one, but each individual person has a little bit of one too. Yeah. And then, so what what might be true this summer, right? Because we're coming out a wave of social distancing and safety. So we've tamped down the curve. And so we might have a summer of bliss, but then as we get back together and spend more time, it comes back up and then we hit cold and flu season. So it goes up again, maybe. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so don't take my word for it. But, you know, I hear this theory out there from some scientists. So that dimmer switch that can look really open in the summer might have to get turned way back down in the fall. And so that's a really important thing we're going to need to do. Paul, I'm hoping that you are right about some summer bliss. I think we could all use it. I could use it. Absolutely. I'll take it and I'll use it. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. We are going to link to lots of the resources that you provided. My pleasure. Thanks again to Paul. We have links to a number of the resources we talked about today, including First Person's Return to Work Toolkit in our podcast description. Thanks for tuning in this week to IBJ's Beyond COVID podcast. You can find it at ibj.com every Tuesday or subscribe at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Podbean. You can also check out the latest episode of the IBJ podcast hosted by Mason King. This week, IBJ political reporter Lindsay Erdodi and political science professor Robert Dion join Mason in a discussion about Governor Eric Holcomb's pandemic response and what it means for his re-election bid. Tune in at ibj.com or anywhere you download podcasts. See you next week.